let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 9. And as you're finding your way there, when you get there, put your finger on verse 42. That's what we'll be hanging out over these next few moments. Well, a few weeks ago, there was a, a pitcher for the Chicago White Sox named Chris Sale. Chris Sale is the ace of the staff. He's their number one pitcher. He's their go-to guy. Well, he was scheduled to start on one particular game. And when he showed up at the clubhouse and he discovered that he and the rest of the team were going to be wearing throwback jerseys, he wasn't happy. He didn't like the throwback jersey. He thought it was uncomfortable. He didn't like the way it felt on his skin. It, it was just too, uh, just, he, he did, it bothered him. And so he threw a fit. The guy went berserk. He went and found a knife and he took it to his jersey, just cut it all up. But not only did he cut up his jersey, he went all Edward Scissorhands on his teammate's jersey. He went into their lockers and started cutting up all kinds of jerseys, just throwing a huge fit there in the locker room. Well, they scratched him from the lineup. He didn't get to start. The game was carried by the bullpen, and the league suspended him, and the team disciplined him. And, and I, you, can make what, you can make out what you want and draw your own conclusions about his his actions, uh, the team, again, he was suspended for five games, but I'll be honest with you, for $9 million a year, I would pitch in a Chewbacca suit. <laughs> but I guess he and I are just kind of cut from a different cloth, so to speak. I'm just going to let that one hang out there until somebody gets it. That, that may be all the humor I can muster tonight, to be honest with you. That may be all the humor I can muster, because tonight we're sliding into a stretch in Mark's narrative that, that deals with some rather difficult teachings. Some teaching that many people would prefer to take a knife to and just kind of cut out of the Bible. Some teachings that, in effect, we would like to say, well, this is just too uncomfortable. I don't want to abide in these words. I don't want to wear this, so let's just do away with it. It's too uncomfortable. This is essentially what Jesus is doing, beginning in verses 42 through 50. He's addressing the realities of sin and, and hell. Now, one of the reasons we as a church ordinarily, albeit not exclusively, but ordinarily we tend to journey through books of the Bible, one of the reasons why we do so is because it forces us to deal with these types of passages. I believe one of the worst ways I can serve you as a pastor and one of the worst ways you and I can serve the city of Seattle is by projecting a caricature of Christ. You know what a caricature is, right? You know a caricature is a, is a picture of someone that kind of zeroes in on one particular feature. then kind of blows that feature out of proportion to the rest of the face, to the rest of the image. And it becomes the only feature that's focused on. It captures all the attention and and I believe there's a temptation you and I face to do this, a similar thing with Jesus. And it happens when we selectively carve out portions of his teachings that our postmodern sensibilities find offensive or uncomfortable. See, many of us, no doubt, I, I believe, would probably love the gentle Jesus who washes the, the feet of his disciples. We love gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but we might loathe the angry Jesus who's cracking whips in temples and turning over tables and doing that type of thing. We may love Jesus' teaching on forgiveness and taking care of the poor, but loathe his teaching on sin and judgment such as we find in this passage. 
And the reality is, as you and I journey through the Gospels together, if we're going to be serious about studying the Scriptures and exploring who Jesus is and what is He all about, then aspects of His teaching will inevitably offend us on some level. I believe aspects of Jesus' teaching will inevitably offend every culture on the planet. It will offend every culture on the planet, every tribe on the planet, every family, every individual, every generation will find various aspects of Jesus' teaching and, and that, that they want to bristle against, they want to recoil, and they don't want to deal with. You see, if all that Jesus said and did fits squarely with what you and I already believe and do, then there would be no discernible need for Jesus. There'd be no discernible need for him or for his kingdom and What makes Jesus relevant for us isn't the fact that he enters the world applauding everything about us. What makes him relevant isn't that he steps into the world applauding every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our behaviors and every aspect of our world. What makes Jesus relevant is discovered, I believe, only in his offense. His relevance to our lives is tied to his willingness to offend our lives. His willingness to contradict us. His willingness to go after us. Because that's what reminds us we're dealing with a real person in Jesus. We're not dealing with a figment of our imagination. We're not dealing with a caricature. We're dealing with a real person who loves us enough to tell us not simply what we want to hear at times, but to tell us what we need to hear. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus embodies the wisdom of Proverbs 27, verse 6. It says, faithful are the, are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of enemies. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And we know that Jesus is the best friend that we can have because he's willing to wound us with his words. But understand, when he wounds us with his words, he doesn't just want to leave us exposed. He doesn't just want to leave us hurting. He, he, wants, he wounds us so that he might bind us, so that he might restore us, so that he might heal us and make us stronger people than we were before getting cut, so to speak. You see, earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, a few weeks ago, we looked at that passage where Jesus makes an alarming statement, where kind of one of those sobering statements. He says, whoever, get this, is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, what's striking about that verse is the conjunction. It's the and. He says, anyone who's ashamed not only of me, but of my words. You see, I don't think many of us have a problem with the person of Jesus per se. People tend to like Jesus, at least the culturally conditioned caricatures we have of him. But understand that what got Jesus crucified was his words. What we're tempted to be the most ashamed of are his words. What got him killed was the things he spoke about himself and the ways in which his words challenged the religious rulers of his day. And so in tonight's passage, we're going to find some words of Jesus that are going to challenge us, that might unsettle us, some words that might wound us. But my prayer is that I echo, as, as I echo his words tonight, that you would hear them coming, I pray, from, from a friend 
Faithful are the wounds that come from someone who loves us, someone who is a friend to us. I pray that you would hear Jesus' words in that light. You see, in this passage, Jesus warns us about the seriousness of sin, and he talks about the the reality of of hell, but we're also going to see that in the very same breath, Jesus sets us up for apprehending the grace of the gospel. Let's start in verse 42. You look at verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, Jesus uses graphic language there, and he continues to use graphic language, talking about an unquenchable fire, undying worms, talking about cutting off parts of your your body. He's using graphic language. But he starts in verse 42 by targeting anyone who might cause a little one. Little one there is a reference back up to verse 41 to disciples, to anyone who's trusting in Jesus, who's following Christ. Anyone who would cause a little one who believes in him to sin or to stumble or to fall, Jesus says it would be better for them to have a giant millstone tied around their neck and cast in the bottom of the sea. That's graphic language. That's some intense metaphors. I mean, in the ancient world, grain was, was ground by these large cylinder-shaped millstones. And they were so big and so heavy, they could only be pushed by a beast of burden like a donkey or an ox. This wasn't something people could do on their own. So, so he's talking about something major here. He says, take one of those, tie it around such a person's neck, and cast them into the bottom of the sea. And that image would have struck fear in the hearts of every one of Jesus' Jewish hearers because the sea in antiquity represented chaos, it represented disorder. The sea is what the Jewish mind was most afraid of. And so Jesus is drawing on images that were intended to cause the the hair to stand, stand up on the back of people's neck. And he's saying, Anyone who would cause a little one, with a reference to his disciples, to stumble or fall, this is what should go down for them. Now, a few years, several years ago, now I'm a lot older than I used to be. Every day, time just doesn't stop. It's kind of greedy that way. But I went to a private liberal arts college, and it was a small private liberal arts college from an undergrad degree. It had Christian roots and a Christian heritage, and it was one of those, cl- one of those schools that required every student to take different courses on the Bible. And there were Regardless of someone's following Christ or not, they required everyone to go through these classes. And there were some professors that were fantastic. They were great. But then there were some other professors that seemed to make it their mission. There was one in particular who seemed to make it his mission to undermine the faith of his impressionable 18, 19-year-old students. And so he'd take these students into his classroom and he would intentionally seek to shake the foundations of their faith. And I would ask him, when I got older and a little more mature, I would ask him why he took that approach in the classroom. And, and he looked at me and he says, well, I, I just want them to start asking questions. I want them to learn how to ask questions. And so to do that, I, I have to shake them up. Now, perhaps some of you have come across Christian teachers and writings who take a very similar approach, who feel like they must shake the foundations of young believers' faith, or whatever the case may be. And so in their books, in their blogs, they suggest it is perhaps more spiritual for a person to be living in doubt than to have an assured faith. And 
Perhaps they suggest that if you really want to be a mature person, if you really want to be a thoughtful Christian, you have to doubt. You have to not only entertain doubt, but sustain doubt, as if doubt is ever a goal for a believer. As if doubt is something to be desired. And what happens is, when we begin to doubt and we begin to struggle with our faith in Christ, and and then we're encouraged by teachers and leaders and other people saying that's a sign of maturity, all of a sudden we become proud of our doubts. And if we ever get proud of our doubts, I assure you, we're wallowing in unbelief. If you're proud of your doubt, you're no longer doubting, you're disbelieving. And that's not where you want to be. That's not a sign of maturity. It's not a sign of intellectual Christianity. It's it's not that. Or maybe, perhaps, some of you are the types of disciples who like to prod other people's faith. You just like to poke at it. You just like to prod and poke at people's faith, trying to test it, trying to stretch it. And you think, you're doing a, a good, you think you're doing something good for another, but I would just warn you, if that's your approach to discipleship, if you're just a prodder and oppressor, you just like to play devil's advocate in every situation when it comes to faith, and you're not being sensitive to where people are in their journey with Jesus, let me, let me warn you, because there is a fine line between helping Christians grow up intellectually. There is a fine line between helping Christians grow up intellectually and then de- deconstructing their faith to never build it up again. There's a fine line between that, so be careful. I think this is the type of thing, it's not the only thing, but it is the type of thing that Jesus warns against with this graphic imagery. He's saying a quick drowning is preferable to the fate such actions deserve. And I believe this is why you and I must have high standards for leaders in our church. We must have high standards of humility, high standards of biblical fidelity, high standards of gospel clarity. I know some of you can attest that when leaders fail to lead well, that can have an adverse effect on people's faith. We've seen that happen. Perhaps that's the story some of you are in right now, and I want you to know I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you haven't been led well. I'm sorry if you haven't been taught well. I'm sorry if that is your story. And you need to know that Jesus will hold those accountable who have harmed your faith. He will hold those accountable who may have harmed your faith. You need to know that. But at the same time, At the same time, you also need to know that you cannot ultimately justify your unbelief because someone else harmed your faith. In other words, you need to know that you cannot use those bad leaders as an excuse to justify your faithfulness or an excuse to settle into your disbelief or an excuse to settle into stumbling and bumbling and no longer following Christ. You can't use bad leadership as a smokescreen for your accountability to God. And so Jesus here, I think, shifts gears from verse 42 to verse 43 to square up on that. So he's been talking about others causing people to stumble, but then he just squares up right at you. And he says, but here's what you need to think about because you can't use those experiences as a smokescreen. So I'm going to talk to you directly. And then he goes on to say, and if your hand, you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Then he says, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Using this drastic imagery, he insists that we get rid of anything in our lives that might cause us to sin, with, and he does it with 
much metaphoric hyperbole, he instructs us to hack off body parts. Now, don't hear that and think, okay, let's go do that. That's not the application from this passage. There was a guy by the name of Oregon back in the day, one of the early church leaders who read this passage, interpreted it in that literal fashion, in that wooden fashion, and he was struggling with his sexual desires and his sexual urges, and he castrated himself. If, don't do that, right? <laughs> That's not what Jesus is getting after in this moment. He's not speaking literally. He's using metaphoric hyperbole to get a point of cross. But here's the deal. If, to say that Jesus is not speaking literally, that does not mean Jesus is not speaking seriously. You can speak with grave seriousness through the use of metaphors. This is what Jesus is doing. He's using these metaphors to make a maximum impact upon his hearers and upon our lives tonight. He's saying that sin is a serious problem and it needs to be dealt with in a serious fashion. And this is true for a variety of couple of reasons. I'll just give you a couple tonight. One, the reason why he talks so seriously about sin is because he knows that sin has a way of dehumanizing us. Sin dehumanizes people. Yes, it is true. Each and every one of us have been created in the image of God. But it is also true that sin mars that image within us. We do not reflect the image of God very well. And one of the most common conditions of, uh, aspects of the human condition is that we will ordinarily reflect that which we worship. We will ordinarily become like anything that we are loyal to or drawing life from. And so what happens with sin is that we no longer reflect the image of God. We begin to give our allegiance and our affections to other aspects of the created order. And suddenly we're no longer reflecting the image of God. We're reflecting the image of these counterfeit gods in our lives. Sin has a way of dehumanizing us, of causing us to become creatures God did not intend us to be. It's not unlike what went down in Smeagol's life in The Lord of the Rings. Smeagol, you may know him as Gollum. Smeagol was a hobbit at one point, just like Frodo, just like Bilbo. That was the type of creature he was. But the moment his heart woke up to the ring of power and he began to obsess over the ring of power, you begin to see him devolve. You begin to see a transformation occur, and Smeagol then became Gollum. And his obsession with the ring of power drove him, changed him. It made him a figure that lived underneath the earth who could not stand the light of day. He devolved. That's a picture of what sin does to us. Sin has a way of dehumanizing us. I'll give you a couple of examples. If, if a person goes the way of Gollum and obsesses over power and control, they will increasingly begin to see other people as collaborators, as competitors, or maybe even pawns. They won't view other people as image bearers of God. They will redefine the other as according to some other definitions. Or if a person's chief allegiance is given to money, that person will increasingly begin to define himself and define other people in those terms. He will see and treat other people as creditors, as debtors, as partners, as customers, rather than as human beings. That's dehumanization. It affects how we see ourselves. It affects how we see one another. It, it's tied to what sin is gripping us and we're obsessing over. Or you might take, for example, a person who's obsessed with sex and sexuality. 
And they begin to find, and a person begins to define his or herself by their sexuality. And sexual gratification becomes their primary passion and their primary goal. And all of a sudden, they're no longer viewing other people as image bearers of God. They begin to see other people as objects designed to fulfill their own gratification. And so porn begins to explode. And so all types of things begin to happen as a result of this type of dynamic. Sin is serious because it dehumanizes people. Jesus says deal with sin because sin is going to dehumanize you and it's going to dehumanize others. Now, sin manifests itself in a myriad of other dehumanizing ways. This dehumanizing process, according to Jesus in this passage, if it is left unchecked by repentance and if it is left untouched by the gospel, this dehumanizing process will carry a person into It will carry a person into an eternity exiled from the kingdom of God into a place Jesus refers to as as hell. You see, not only does sin dehumanize people, sin condemns people. It dehumanizes us and it condemns us. This is what Jesus is saying, verse 43. He says, it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire saying it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, if you've been journeying with the Hallows Church for any length of time, you know we are not a hellfire and brimstone kind of church. We are not like the caricatures of Christians that Matt Growing writes up and draws out in The Simpsons. We we do not regularly picket street corners with signs saying turn or burn. We, in fact, many of us, I assume, would abhor those types of ministry efforts. That's just not our that's not our approach. We're a church, I trust that you know, that leads with Jesus. We're a church that leads with Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We're a church that believes it's not possible for us to say enough about Jesus. So we talk about Jesus. We exalt his cross. We exalt his resurrection. We talk about Jesus a lot. And we do not believe it's possible for us to talk too much about him. But here's the challenge for churches like ours. It is not possible for us to talk too much about Jesus, but for a church like ours, it is possible for us to talk too little about hell. It is possible for us to talk too little about some of the things that Jesus emphasizes in the gospel. And so what we have to do as a church is face the awkward fact that Jesus does envision a separation between life in the kingdom of God and a place called Gehenna or hell in this passage. We have to be honest about the fact that Jesus demanded repentance and faith in order to escape sin's condemnation. We have to be honest with the fact that of the 12 times in the New Testament hell is discussed, 11 times comes from the lips of Jesus. And the language he uses in verse 48 is a direct quote drawn from the last verse in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, verse 24. He's quoting the Old Testament. Said Jesus isn't dropping new knowledge on anybody. He's talking to people who knows the Old Testament. They're familiar with Isaiah's words. And he says, yes, this is what's going down. This is true. This is where we're heading. So he, he talks about hell. 
And he talks about it with this graphic imagery of fire and worms. Now, we hear those images, and I know many of us are tempted to think, well, those images, that's, that's not really uh, 21st century Christianity. That's more medieval Christianity. That the images of fire and brimstone and worms and those types of creepy images, that, that's relegated to the Middle Ages. That's where that stuff came out of, or so we assume, but... If we're going to be honest with what we're reading in front of us, we, we want to agree with Dorothy, Dorothy Sayers, a renowned 20th century uh, writer who provides this antidote to that way of thinking. She says, you know, in the 20th century, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy, especially among middle-aged writers of vaguely liberal tendency to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. One finds frequent references to the cruel and abominable medieval doctrine of hell or to the childish and grotesque medieval imagery of physical fire and worms. But the case is quite otherwise. Let us face the facts. The doctrine of hell is not medieval. It is Christ's. It is not a device of medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. The imagery of the undying worm and the unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition, but originally from the prophet Isaiah, and it was Christ who emphatically used it. It confronts us in the oldest and least edited of the Gospels, referring to Mark. It is explicit in many of the most familiar parables and implicit in many more. It bolts far larger in the teaching than one realizes until one reads the Gospels through instead of picking out the most comfortable texts. See, one cannot get rid of it without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot, get this, repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. Jesus taught the doctrine of hell. And Jesus introduced or carries out the images of unquenchable fire and undying worms to describe what hell will be like. And some might say, well, isn't Jesus speaking metaphorically? Aren't these just metaphors? He's not being literal. And although I think that's right, Jesus isn't being literal. He is speaking metaphorically. But, but to say that Jesus isn't speaking literally does not mean he's not speaking seriously. Metaphors correlate with something. They signify something, and I assure you that whatever the metaphors of fire and worms signify, they do not signify something pleasant. What they signify is something horrific. Now, many scholars like to point out the fact that in, during Jesus' day, they believed that there was a place outside of Jerusalem referred to as Gehenna, and this was like a, a big trash dump where... People in Jerusalem would throw animal carcasses and other garbage. They would just kind of burn there. And so you could look out on Gehenna from a certain angle and you could see just smoke and smoldering. You could see worms and maggots. You could see this literal place uh, existing outside of Jerusalem. And there are many who say, well, Jesus was just referring to that. There was one popular Christian writer who wrote recent years a book on hell. And, and he speaks rather condescendingly of those who would believe in a serious hell. He, he would say, if anyone asks you if you believe in a literal hell, you can say, yeah, it was a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. And he says it kind of snarkily, he says it condescendingly, and says it rather dismissively. But even if Jesus drew his analogy from he for hell from an actual place, even if he did, 
which is debatable, but even if Jesus drew his analogy for hell from an actual place, that actual place signifies something seriously horrific. It signifies something, and it's not going to be pleasant, whatever it is. And so Jesus' description of hell in this passage and in other passages should cause us to heed his warning regarding the seriousness of sin, not only in how it dehumanizes us, but in how it condemns us. And so we read these words and we, we realize that we should not let anything stand in our way from entering the kingdom of God and enjoying eternal life. Not even something that we might think is indispensable like an eye or an arm or a leg. Hell will be worse than anything we must sacrifice in the process of following Jesus in this world. You think being looked down upon for your faith in Jesus is hard? I assure you, hell will be worse. You think working on your marriage is too hard? I assure you, hell will be worse. You think swallowing your pride and being humble is too hard? I assure you, hell will be worse. You think being passed over for a promotion because you refuse to cut corners or cheat the system is hard? I assure you, hell will be worse. You think abstinence and sexual purity is hard? I assure you, hell will be worse. Whatever the particulars of hell are, whatever, whatever they are, they are far from pleasant. And you and I should not make light of it. We should not make jokes about hell. We should sing we should not sing songs celebrating parties in hell. We should not tell anyone to go to hell. Hell is not something we want to play games with. Because when we repudiate hell, it can be said that we actually repudiate Christ. So how should we think about hell then? How, how should we think about this thing that Jesus is referring to? Now, often when we talk about hell, we do so as though it is, it's a separation from God. And we say, okay, well, hell means to be separated from God. And there's an eternal thrust to it. And so that's this separation from God. And I've used that language often. But let me encourage us to think about it a little with a, a little bit of a theological nuance, so to speak. If, if God is God, then... Is it possible for a person to actually be separated from him? If God is everywhere present, if that is true about God, then can we say that hell is simply separation from him? Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, David suggests that uh, that's not the case. He says, he asks the question, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Talking to God. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. But then listen to what he says. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He's saying, no matter where I go, God, your presence is there, whether it's heaven or Sheol. Now, to be sure, Sheol in the Old Testament does not refer to hell per se. Sheol was a place believed to be where the dead went to wait for the judgment day when after which, after the day of judgment, that's when hell would kick in. So Sheol was kind of this waiting place. It was believed in the, in the old day, in the... In antiquity, and, and so he's saying, if I go to Sheol, but it seems that the, the analogy would extend even if we were going to talk about hell. See, so whatever the particulars of hell will be, we can say rather confidently that hell is not the eternal absence of God per se. 
what we can say about hell is that hell is the eternal absence of God's blessing. It's the eternal absence of his favor. It's the eternal absence of his mercy. It's the eternal absence of his grace. It's the eternal absence of his salvation. But if that is true, then what aspect of God is present? What, what is, how are we to think about this? If, if hell is the eternal absence of God's blessing, we kind of flip that on his head and we can say rather confidently, all things being taken into consideration, that hell is a place of judgment, And in the absence of God's blessing, we find the eternal presence of God's cursing. It's the eternal presence of God's condemnation, of God's cursing. And I know that's hard to stomach. I know that's hard to swallow. This is why many people have tried to soften hell by redefining it. This is why many people have tried to redefine hell by diminishing its eternal trajectory. And so they... There are some, particularly coming out of the 20th century, uh, that really championed a type of universalism that says that no one will ultimately wind up there. I wish I could go there. There are are parts of me that wish I could go there, but I, I can't. I can't go there because the scriptures won't let me. I can't go there because of what I know about the character of God in the scriptures, what Jesus teaches in the scriptures. And this is why a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, he's one of the most renowned, finest New Testament scholars in the world. He's highly respected. And he offers this admonition. Listen to what he says. He says, I find it quite impossible reading the New Testament on the one hand and the newspaper, and the newspaper on the other to suppose that there will be no ultimate condemnation. No final loss, no human beings to whom, as C.S. Lewis put it, God will eventually say, thy will be done. I wish it were otherwise, but one cannot forever whistle. There's wideness in God's mercy in the darkness of Hiroshima, of Auschwitz, of the murder of children, and the careless greed that enslaves millions with debts not their own. Humankind cannot, alas, bear very much reality. And the massive denial of reality, get this, by the cheap and cheerful universalism of Western liberalism has a lot to answer for. Has a lot to answer for. There's a final condemnation under the curse of God called hell for those who dehumanize themselves and dehumanize others as well. Sin is to be taken seriously and hell must be considered sober-mindedly. But the grace of the gospel in this moment holds out hope for each each and every one of us. Because the only real way you and I can talk about hell today is by discovering what hell tells us about Jesus. Jesus would say elsewhere in the Gospels that everything in the Bible is about him. That includes hell. Hell is about Jesus. And so we want to think about hell in light of Jesus. We want to let what he's teaching here, drive us into an understanding of what we have in Jesus and what we've been given from Jesus. We we don't want to just focus on hell. We want hell in this moment to drive us to Jesus. And I think this is what he does in verses 49 and 50. Now, he mentions a couple of verses there at the end that are quite 
complicated. Their, their, their meaning is not readily apparent. He says in verse 49, For everyone, everyone, referring, I believe, to the disciples, all of his disciples will be salted with fire. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So he makes this statement, and it's quite perplexing. The, the imagery in verses 49 and 50 is drawn from Leviticus chapter 2, because when you talk about fire and salt, there's one place you go to figure out what that means, what those images are pointing us to, and that is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, talks about the relationship between salt and burnt offerings, the sacrificial system that God gave his people and outlined in quite frustrating detail in the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, listen to what he says. He says, God's, God's laying out those instructions, and he says, You shall season your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So every sacrifice that was given, it was salty. It was, there was salt added to every sacrifice in Leviticus designed to facilitate Israel's relationship with God so that they might live under God's blessing and not his cursing. And what's fascinating about it, every sacrifice, every altar uh, offering was salted. And the question is why? Well, the reason for that is because when an offering was lit on fire, the offering would be completely consumed and only the salt would be left behind. So on the altar, salt would be left behind and that salt served as a reminder that after offering but after making an offering or making a sacrifice, after it was completed, then God's covenant promises would remain intact. The salt assured the people that they were in living and enjoying the blessing and the favor of God. They're doing what God told them to do. They're operating in his economy, and the salt signified that. So that all the promises God made his people would be fulfilled because the necessary offerings and sacrifices had been made. And all the sacrifices outlined in Leviticus were intended to do this. And fast forward to the New Testament. And what we find in the New Testament is that all of those sacrifices, they were shadows of which Christ, of which Jesus was the substance. All of those sacrifices were living metaphors pointing to the reality of what Jesus would accomplish when he offered himself. What would go down through his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. The writer of Hebrews makes this clear. You don't have to turn here. I'll pop it up on the screen, but listen to these words. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never but the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. They were leading to something. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? Why didn't the Old Testament sacrifices work? Why did they have to be repeated? Well, because the ultimate sacrifice had not yet come. 
So in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. They're reminded, I I need cleansing, I need forgiveness, I need grace, we need sacrifice. Every year, they're reminded of that. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This body that Jesus would offer to God entirely upon the cross. And then he would offer up his body, verse 12, down in that same chapter. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His sacrifice was enough for us. So what does hell tell us about Jesus? Hell tells us that when Jesus went to the cross and he offered up his body, he offered up his life, it tells us that on the cross, Jesus was dehumanized. Jesus was dehumanized. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Christ, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him he, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was dehumanized on the cross. Our sin in some mysterious way was placed upon him and he took the hit our sin deserved and in the process he was dehumanized. But not only was Christ dehumanized on the cross when he offered that once for all sacrifice, we find on the cross that Jesus was condemned. He was dehumanized. He was condemned. On the cross, he endured the curse of God. What does hell tell us about Jesus? It tells us the cross is a very big deal. It tells us that Jesus did something incredibly important for us. Galatians chapter 2 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Jesus endured God's curse on the cross so that those of us who trust in him never have to. So that all that is left for those who trust in Jesus are the covenant promises of blessing, the covenant promises of acceptance, the covenant promises of heaven, of new creation. The covenant promises are fulfilled in Jesus. This is why we repent of our sin. This is why we trust in Jesus, because ultimately the Savior went through the hell of dehumanization. He went through the hell of condemnation so that you and I never have to. He did that so we never have to. This is why we trust in Jesus now. This is why when we talk about hell, we run to Jesus. Because on the cross, he was dehumanized. On the cross, he was condemned. On the cross, he endured hell so that you and I never have to. That's the gospel of grace. That's the hope we have in Jesus. And the only response worthy of such sacrificial love in the offering of Jesus is for you and I to respond by offering up our entire selves to him. This is discipleship. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is why in the book of Romans, right after Jesus, uh, Paul lays out the gospel, chapter 12, verse 1, what does he say? He says, now in view of God's mercy, in view of what Christ endured on the cross for you, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Christ gave his entire self to you. He gave his entire self for you. And you and I now give our entire selves to him. This is how we respond. This is how the doctrine of hell drives us to worship Jesus. This is how the doctrine of hell drives us to make much of Jesus in this city. Not just a caricature that we create, 
but a comprehensive portrait of who Jesus is in the Gospels. This is how the doctrine of hell actually encourages us to do what we're going to do over these next few moments, and that is worship. The doctrine of hell drives us to respond to Jesus by worshiping him through song, worshiping him through prayer, worshiping him through sacrificial generosity as we give in a variety of ways to make much of the gospel in this city and and around the world. The doctrine of hell drives us to the table where we remember the death of Jesus as we partake of the bread and his body given for us and we dip it in the cup and we're reminded of how Jesus shed his blood for us, that he endured dehumanization, he endured condemnation for us and we come to the table now and we celebrate that and we worship Jesus in response to what's going down. And when that happens, suddenly we're able to live at peace with one another because all of a sudden we're reminded of our egalitarian, uh, cli- the egalitarian climate in the kingdom of God that this is true for every one of us. We all need grace. We all need salvation. None of us are better than anyone else. So we come to the, cro- come to the table and we meditate upon these realities and we respond by offering up our lives to this Jesus who gave himself for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace over these next few moments as we respond to what your Holy Spirit may be stirring within us and doing in our minds and in our hearts. I pray that we would respond accordingly and appropriately. God, would you be honored in our singing over these few moments? Would you be honored in our approach to the table? Would you be honored in the peace that that we want to live out and carry forward in our relationships with each other in light of all that your Son did for us? God, would you do that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.